Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week, Sebastian Johnson comes back to the show. We talked about social media, the basic income, and the future of American education. Enjoy! After Donald Trump was elected, everyone wanted to be like, I knew this was going to happen, but no one knew. No. I had no idea. I was I was convinced that that people would never vote for Donald Trump. I was convinced that that even if people were like, I really don't like Hillary Clinton and think mm-hmm. that she would not be good for the country, I know that Donald Trump will be bad for the country. Yeah. Because he's so transparently bad. Is, is I guess my, and maybe that's just a partisan, I don't know. I don't know what's partisan anymore or like what's just based on like reality. Right. Because the reality of the situation is like, this is bad. Yeah. And, and I think, and, and I think that's part of, part of the, the deepening partisanship has made it a whole lot easier for alternative facts to mm-hmm. be a thing. Like mm-hmm. it, you know, we, we got so good at telling, you know, yelling at the other people, you're wrong without any sort of validation that. Mm-hmm. Now it's really easy to say like, well, that's that's your objective opinion, but here's my objective opinion, and they totally differ, and that makes sense somehow. Exactly. Well, so much of politics is narrative, mm-hmm. like, and and that really is what's interesting is that you know you can choose whatever narrative you want and find enough like pseudoscientific bullshit to to back you. Like it's the mm-hmm. the guy who shows up at a pizza parlor. Because he's like, there's a child sex ring in the basement. It's like, you just really wanted to believe that. Right. Well, and, you and know? yeah. <laughs> like, you want to believe the evil thing about the person who you're demonizing, and like, you can find whatever evidence you want. Like, right. our president accusing our other president, our former president of wire, like, it's a prime example. Yeah. Like, and, and, I, and I think it's also, it's also a great example of how, I mean, how we've totally, failed mm-hmm. in terms of in some aspects of education because we haven't like we've been so fo- we focus so much on core competence excuse me core competencies yep. um like math and science and writing and mm-hmm. then lose really important practical skills like media literacy yep um and deductive reasoning which are really helpful for the other things but a little bit esoteric and a little bit out there so that it seems like Oh well, we can just fund the fund the other thing and they'll figure it out. Exactly. You have to. I mean, it's you know you have your your reptile brain and your your ego, right? Essentially, and like you have to be trained in using it mm-hmm. and in getting past your own biases. And most people are not. And I think that what social media is really good at, in a way that you know even to some extent television or or any of the other mass communications were, is targeting a message to a person in a way that like perfectly takes advantage of those of those cognitive biases right you know it it totally takes advantage of like you know your version of cognitive dissonance um by foregrounding the facts that mm-hmm. you know flatter your position right like tearing down the facts that that are contradictory and then also you, you know there's a heuristic to just like you know i when you're appealing to authority or or, or a sense of like expertise 
Like, you know, we, we take shortcuts in our brain. So like you, you'll get an article on Breitbart and it'll be full of like links Mm -hmm. and like you see it and you're like, Oh, it's linked. There's a fact, Mm -hmm. but no one follows it. All of the links in the article. But if you see links, you associate it with like, aha, like someone has done their research. Right. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's like that cartoon. (laughs) The one that's like on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. It's like, (laughs) you don't really. Right. It, it's a funny cartoon, but is there a central truth of like this communication medium? You just don't know. There's no gatekeeper. Yeah. And that, I think, I mean, that's how you get Donald Trump. It's that all the gatekeepers who would usually keep Donald Trump out of the Republican Party or, or off of the television, like they're, they're gone. Yeah. And, and the ones that exist, people don't trust. They're compromised. I mean, Donald Trump, Donald Trump is a vehicle of fear. Like mm-hmm. he, he leverages the base fear of that of your hindbrain like he Mm -hmm. taps into your ego looking out for the worst because Mm -hmm. that's what we're i mean biologically built to do is to look out for whatever is going to hurt us next so that we can avoid it the weird thing about humans is we're not biological predators right like we're we our intellect allowed us to become that without without actually developing that um so we're still always looking out for the thing that's going to kill us Mm -hmm. and he's so good he and his team are so good at leveraging that i mean and and bringing on roger ailes after he left fox was i mean was brilliant because they no one knows better how to tap into that vein than Mm -hmm. they do at the same time so many of the other voices in social media and also in the growing like cable and digital media world are in there because of the lack of gatekeepers as well like you have so many you have so many people who have come to this space because from that same freedom and and because we aren't as a populace educated enough to be our own gatekeepers Mm -hmm. that's how we've ended up with like the Donald Trumps of the world exactly and that I think I mean it's the tension it's the promise and the and the peril is that yes like it is it's great that we have a democratization of media but how do we navigate it Mm -hmm. so Tommy Lahren Mm -hmm. can like record a video on Facebook and a million people will watch it and like now she is a a voice on conservative media that's incredible and that we should be encouraging young people to participate. Mm -hmm. But then the downside of that is that like, there's no vet. Like, it's not that I I want her to be vetted, but I do want there to be some understanding of like, is this a credible source of news? Right. (laughs) Should you get your news from this person? I do think there are some, like there are some gatekeepers though. Like, I mean, you look at what like the young Turks are doing. Like Mm -hmm. they have those response. They have response videos, which are all really, which are both entertaining and, you know, pretty informative Mm -hmm. or at least, point back enough to the problems with that type of media right um so that you at least have you, you at least at least have access to uh at least have access to an alternate opinion right to someone who's saying maybe this isn't quite accurate or it's missing in some sort of nuance uh-huh. um i think that's and that's i think one thing that's lacking and that i don't know how to bring back is nuance yes like, cause it's really easy. It, like if you want hits, like if I want, if I want this podcast or wh- anything else that I'm working on to be successful in a really quick way mm-hmm. and in an explosive way, it's gotta be shocking. It's gotta, yeah. it's gotta have some drive behind it. And if it, if it's nuanced, if it's like trying to do something deeper or mm-hmm. that takes a little bit more focus, it, it's just a slower burn. Like right. if it gets off the ground, it, it's going to take a while. And it's also like you're, you, there's a different expectation of like who your audience is, right? Mm-hmm. They have to 
want what it is that you're selling. They have to want nuance. Right. And I don't think there's a real hunger. Like, so, and that's the other thing. People are kind of like, whenever people shit on the media, it's always other people's media. Yeah. It's not your own media. You're no, like, I like my media. Yeah. You know, it's like Slate is great. There's a, to some extent where it's like, I'm reading Slate and like, I know, I don't, there's no nuance. <laughs> like, I'm the article I'm reading, I'm like, there's not any nuance here. No. But I'm reading it because I feel angry and I want to, <laughs> I want someone to articulate the outrage that I feel about some event, some, like probably something that Trump said. Yeah. And I consume a lot of that media and mm-hmm. it's, it's smarter than like some, like it's not full of lies. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's that. Yeah. Basic level of competency. But For sure. But it's I, still not the same as nuance. The difference that I, I've sort of come to embrace between a uh, conservative politics and democratic mm-hmm. politics is mm-hmm. a Democrat uh, left-leaning person will come to a conversation and say, this is what I know, and I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is what I know, and I'm I'm open to being proved wrong. Mm-hmm. And th- I feel like the conservative line has become... This is what I know, and I'm so certain of it, you will never convince me in any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll never convince me otherwise. And I think that that points back to the same sort of issues of where like, where the electorate went wrong. Like The reason, Demo- the reason Democrats didn't quite show up for Hillary and the reason so many Republicans ended up going with Trump is because there was this inherent certainty of his rightness. Yeah. Either, either the rightness of economic power or the rightness of what he was saying about yeah. immigration or mm-hmm. the rightness of, I have been so thoroughly wronged by the Democrats. I don't know how or why, but I know that in my heart, I have been wronged. Yeah. And so I can't vote for Hillary or I have to vote for Donald. Right. I, I think the part of part of that like certainty comes from like the, frag, the, the political fragmentation that you see. Mm-hmm. I think that certainty is also across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. For instance, you see it like in uh, the election for DNC chair, where it was like it ended up being Ellison versus Perez. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people who were like, if Perez wins this and Ellison doesn't, it's because the Democratic Party is like corrupt mm-hmm. and terrible and like not a lot of nuance in that argument. Yeah. Um, I think it came down to like a really inside baseball. Who does Obama want to be DNC chair? It came down. And I think they literally was just like he's a former president. He has the clout mm-hmm. with the whatever four hundred people yeah. who pick. Yeah, but that it got picked up in the media as like this battle for the soul of the party. Right, and it's like the new one. Like there's no yeah, there's no nuance there. And I think people are like you know there's a certainty on even on like the left where people are like no matter what like I I too have been screwed by the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And, like, they were always going to screw this up. And, like, the people who voted for Bernie then voted for Trump. Like, the fragmentation is there. And people, were like, are just inherently, like, I am certain that political parties are corrupt and, like, out to get me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I don't, I mean, I, I, I get how we got here, but I don't know what you do to address that. Because I'm very, like, I I think I'm I'm much more partisan now than I was even 10 years ago. I don't see under what circumstance I would vote for a Republican politician, even though I'm like very committed to like we we need like a politics that is or or bipartisan approach. I'm just like I just don't know under what circumstances I could vote for a Republican, given that Donald Trump <laughs> is <Yeah>. the president, <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's like the head of their party, yeah. I'm like, there's no way, yeah. How could how could how could I? I feel like I feel like to some extent, and we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to some extent, it's it's got to be a bottom up thing, but I don't know mm-hmm. how we get there because we have to like we have to start 
by reinvesting in education. We have to yeah. start by taking everything we can to teach the kids who, when were Hillary and Donald's age, um, mm-hmm. be running this show. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be teaching people how to do this and how to look at things critically and how to mm-hmm. like, and I guess, I, and, and how to think of how to think outside of liberal and conservative and think in terms of verifiable versus fungible. Like how much right. of this is, how much of this can we not know? Mm-hmm. How much of this do we know? And what reasonable conclusions can we draw from that rather than this feels uncomfortable to me. This is how we've always done it. And so this is what we're going to do. Like, mm-hmm. how do we, how do we get, I think the only way to get people to that point is to teach those skills. And yeah. I don't know how, like in this, especially in this political climate, I don't know how we get there. Mm-hmm. I, I, will, I wanted to go back to something that you said, which I thought was really insightful, which was that like you people come to conversations and they say, this is what I know. Mm-hmm. And I'm open to being challenged on it. Mm-hmm. I think that the certainty also comes from the way that people interact with politics because people are, are getting their news through social media. Your pol- your politics is now like a part of like your identity as a person. I don't think that was the case. I mean, I don't I don't know because I don't remember the 60s or the 70s. Like I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's another shift mm-hmm. is that we you identify so much with what your politics are mm-hmm. like you know it used to be that you you give a survey of americans and it's like 80 percent of people are like i don't support interracial dating <laughs> and now it's flipped where yeah. people are like but if my kid brings home a republican or a democrat mm-hmm. like that's more traumatic to me right and so i think it's because it's identity right. like people are people judge like what kind of person you are based on your politics i mean do you think it's a part of the transition into a thorough like into a more universal identity politic Mm -hmm. like or do do you think that it's because all of the aspects of our identities are being politicized like Mm -hmm. which which direction Mm -hmm. is it coming from because and maybe it's coming from both and it depends on which one you choose i can see like i can see a positive outcome where we get comfortable with that and say okay yeah I am politically engaged with my entirety. Everything mm-hmm. about who I am is a part of this political conversation. Right. And from that perspective, like that's really engaging. It keeps people invested and it makes you want to be a part of this. But from the other side, if it's like I am defending everything about who I am from politics, like from right. this conversation, I'm constantly being attacked because I mean, from the Trump supporter, I'm I'm attacked because I'm a white man. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a I'm a I'm a middle class white man who's just trying to find a job, and everyone's attacking me because I did all of this bad stuff, uh-huh. um, which is legit, and we got to own that. And then from the other side, in my view, significantly more real perspective, which is if I'm a minority, either on the gender spectrum yep. or racially, or as a woman who is not a minority, but we'll set that aside. Right. You're actually being attacked yeah. by policy every day. It's not just the perception. So yep. how, how do we shift from I'm on the defensive to I'm invested because all of who I am is part of this conversation. I think that, that, that those two reactions are, are part of the same process that people feel their identities are under attack because everyone's identity has been politicized. So my caveat is that I'm, I'm not one of these people who's like, the problem is identity politics. Right. I think 
I think that's just dumb. That's just like, <laughs> that's just like you're looking at, you're looking at what's happening mm-hmm. and you're like, the problem is that this thing is happening. It's like, no, <laughs> like identity politics is happening because of other things, like other forces. Right. Part of it is like the fragmentation of the media. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have media that's talking, that's speaking to your identity, which is good. Right. I should be able to feel comfortable as a black person participating in politics and talking about how me being black affects my politics and affects how I'm treated and affects how I see policy. Mm-hmm. That should be, that's good. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's also an aspect of because people want clicks, mm-hmm. because fear is a motivator to explain to people how politics is, is attacking, how you're under threat. And I think that in a very real way, like minority communities are under threat right now Yeah, from Donald Trump's politics, but he was able to use a similar fear and a similar anxiety in rural communities to sell that the people in the cities are like threatening your identity. Mm-hmm. They're attacking you and attacking your way of life and making you insecure. And it's hard to tell people who feel insecure and whose daily existence is, is economic insecurity. And like my community has gone from like a thriving town to like everyone's addicted to heroin now. It's hard to tell them that like that's not real. Yeah. And so the challenge of politics being. How do you build a broad-based coalition to address anything where everyone feels insecure, everyone feels like their identity is under threat? And just to to bring, like, it's a, it's a lack of trust, right? Yeah. It comes back to that lack of trust. People don't trust the political system. Mm-hmm. And they don't trust it in part because the incentives are to divide, to identify your audience and cleave it off and be like, this is, we're under threat here. Yeah. And it's left and right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's been two months, and I think at this point it would be <clears throat> irresponsible to say that Donald Trump has not made it easier for people to discriminate, has not empowered mm-hmm. people who were already who are already pointing towards a lot of really racist, anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. misogynist messaging. Like, it's, it's hard to say that they're not emboldened and that they aren't acting out more. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm curious whether or not this is a trajectory that we were already on in a post Obama America in a world that is sort of broadly addressing our Islamophobia mm-hmm. and our fear of the other. Is this, is this just accelerating that or has, has Trump's America started something a little bit more virulent? Like, mm-hmm. are we looking at something that's a little bit more aggressive than what we would have had anyway, five years down the road, if we hadn't start started to change tracks? I think that that this is something that's definitely a continuation of traits and and trends that you were seeing definitely in our politics, but also more broadly in our culture, that the sorting of people into like ideologically similar enclaves and into racially very similar enclaves over the past 50, 60 years is is something that has produced the politics that we have now. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that Trump's victory was so unexpected and that the messaging, his messaging was explicitly like, this is our last, this is like the last gasp. Like, this is our last opportunity. Mm-hmm. And like a very like kind of like white nationalist way to like to make America great again. Yeah. Um, I think that the fact that he won and it seemed like against all odds and the fact that it like coincides with Brexit and like a, a general feeling globally of crisis. Mm-hmm. I think it's emboldened people more. I think yeah. people are like, they feel like this is the last chance. Yeah. Ultimately, I think he's going to fail. 
and I think for two reasons. One is that one is that he's a con man. <laughs> like I think that for me, what it comes back to <laughs> is that at a very basic level, he has no understanding of how to do this job. Right. And it's like you can't you can't like pretend like it this is just not how the presidency works. You can't have the hardest job and pretend like you know what you're doing. Right. There are people who are much smarter than Donald Trump who are who have work ethic and discipline. Right. And like are not narcissists who have tried <laughs> to do this job and like were shown like not to be up to the task. George Bush, for example. Yeah. Is, you know, his the caricature of him was that he was very dumb. Um, and he certainly isn't like he wasn't the smartest president we've ever had. But he did have an MBA from Harvard and he was a governor of like a very significant state. His father was president. He could call his dad <laughs> and ask him about how to do the job. Yeah. Um, he also surrounded himself with people who gave him bad advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, not like a narcissist and like not like anyone with any of the of the traits that Donald Trump has. Right. And he still like managed to fail totally yeah. in his presidency. So I'm like, Donald Trump has no understanding of the bureaucracy. He doesn't really know what it is that he wants to do. He doesn't really have an agenda Mm -hmm. ideologically. And he doesn't have any self-discipline. So like he creates scandals for himself. Mm -hmm. It's like you could just stop going to Florida, but you won't because he can't can't control himself. Right. Um, So I think he'll fail. And I think that what will be interesting is like what that does to the movement. Right. Because he's the only standard bearer they have. Like who else is waiting in the wings? Jeff Sessions? Right. Who is, I mean, who yeah. is in many ways scarier to me. Right. Yeah, no. It, it, it's he, more terrifying that he has power because he's smart, but it's like, he's not. He's not going to, he's not going to take control. So I think the Republicans are still in trouble. And I think they're starting to realize, like, it's kind of be careful what you wish for. You have, like, mm-hmm. total control of government and you can't, you're kind of paralyzed. because. Yeah. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go from here? My one concern is that mm-hmm. I think he might have been right. In the, in that this is kind of the last gasp. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the, like on a global scale, this is kind of the last gasp of white nationalism mm-hmm. in America. In ten years, we won't even have a token majority. Like mm-hmm. we're 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 on the outs, and that while he's a total con man, he's a really good job at distracting the world from what the people around him are trying to do. Mm-hmm. In the same mm-hmm. way that in the same way that W surrounded himself with bad advisors, Trump has surrounded himself with his really strong team of media um of media experts who are really good at manipulating fear yes. and yes. really good at distracting. Yes. You look at you look at the thing that's going on just long enough to register it, but then they steer you back. So mm-hmm. it's like you knew mm-hmm. you knew it was happening, but you don't really follow through on it. And right. so they're really right. good at navigating that stream so that nothing is ever like there are no stones to be left unturned. Um and, and I, I think th- yep. That that to me is is what's scary is the the behind the scenes maneuvering. Mm-hmm. The thing that also gives me hope there is that, like, even in that aspect, they're bad at that. <laughs> and, and and what I mean is, like, they just don't... It's one thing to, like, run against expertise. It's another thing to govern without expertise. Right. And they don't have the expertise. Steve Bannon is a very smart man. He is not a government administrator. Right. And that's the basic job of the president. So, if you're the president, you're, you're number one power is appointing people to run federal like and so he hasn't done the the one thing that he can do to really shape the agenda of like the american government 
Like if if what Steve Bannon's point is is that we are going to build a federal government that looks out for white nationalist interests and is is also kind of committed to the the proto-libertarian idea of like the night watchman state where yeah. it's like we're zeroing out like the social services, we're cutting all of that. Mm-hmm. Um and we're just going to have a huge military and we're going to have no immigrants and we're going to give benefits to white people. Mm-hmm. Like if that's what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. cool. Like I, I I see how like defunding the administrative state makes sense. Right. But if your interest is in being is in being elected and being successful, mm-hmm. You're not looking out for any of your constituencies, right? Like they're they're starting to do all these stories on like the people who voted for Trump, who are like, I, I'm a Meals on Wheels person, yeah, and like I just don't like immigrants, yeah. And I thought Donald Trump was going to help me, and now you're cutting my program. Mm-hmm. It's hard. You can't cut programs, right? That help working class white people, yeah, and purport to be the savior of working class white people, right? That that to me is why I think it's going to fail because. People didn't vote for that ideology. Right. And Steve Bannon, I don't think, has the long-term, like, administrator or bureaucrat's mind that you need to, like, fundamentally transform agencies. Right. I've actually become less worried about it just because I've seen the chaos. And, like, it is they are very good at managing chaos. Mm-hmm. But I also think that, like, what what has been the, the number one policy win of the first two months? I mean, taking on healthcare, which is, I mean, why would you, I mean, that's, that's the the other thing. Like, I don't understand why Paul Ryan decided to jump on this in front of this particular bullet. It became the Sisyphean task of the Obama administration to defend making sure people had healthcare. And they're mm-hmm. like, you know what? That seems like a really fun rock to push up a hill. Yeah. Like, why, why? Why? You could do, you could just let it lie and like slowly, quietly dismantle it mm-hmm. behind everybody's back. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why they've decided to take this thing and say, oh, look, look at this terrible thing that sucked before. It's going to suck worse now. I Well, they, <laughs> they I think they painted themselves in a corner on that one. Mm-hmm. I, the, I saw the tweet that was going around. It was like, Obama's ultimate troll was to pass Republican health care policy. <laughs> and like at the time, like I was really disappointed because I was like, oh, like single payer would be so much smarter. Mm-hmm. But I... It really is kind of genius to be like, I'm going to take the like the centrist right policy yeah. and implement it. Yeah. And now they like they paint themselves in a corner because there is no alternative Republican policy. No. That is the policy. Yeah. The alternative, the 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 effective alternative is single payer health care. Right. And and no one and everyone, if you ask anyone like in the broken down definition of single payer health care, like, wouldn't mm-hmm. this be better? literally everyone says yeah yeah of course but you can't say that as a republican because it's like well technically that's socialized medicine and like we know that it would be better for everyone but we don't want to give it to you we don't want to pay for it (laughs) and like really like the they've gotten they've gone so far to the right that the answer for a lot of their constituency is like no i don't want people to have healthcare. (laughs) well right and you can't like people are actually having to say that yeah and like that just sounds right i mean it sounds as bad as it is i don't i want i want more people to die right well they and they they because they've gotten to the point where the people who are really hurting in their constituency don't want that they want medicare and medicaid right because they're like i know people who have it i'm on it Mm -hmm. i need that Mm mm-hmm um, otherwise, like, you know, I don't have a job. How would I afford health care? Right. 
and I think the other thing is that you know just so much of the opposition to Obama was was racialized that the fact that it was called Obamacare, people were just like, no, yeah, I don't, I don't want it. Even though, even though at the end of the day, they're like, is medic is Medicaid expansion? Like yeah. you have Medicaid, yeah. If you like it, then then that's that's Obamacare. Well, I mean, and it goes. I think it goes back to the media literacy aspect because mm-hmm. there there were so many stories like coming into out of December and into January of people who are like, yeah, Obamacare was awful, but like the ACA came in and the Republicans got this through and it's like, yeah, no, they're the same thing. Yeah. And, and you had people having to inform people in like these really unfortunately dire or hilarious ways, this thing that you have praised for saving you from the evils of Obamacare is Obamacare. And all of that is about to go away now. And people are like, I don't believe you. Yeah. It doesn't accord with the narrative. It's just like there's the cognitive dissonance is too much for me to admit I was wrong. Yeah. One practice in my politics that I've tried to keep at the forefront is that if I'm having an argument mm-hmm. with someone or I'm having a conversation about policy, I always try to concede a point at some point. Yeah. And just be like, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And then build on the point. Like to practice yes and politics is like... <laughs> It's hard to do mm-hmm. in every case, but I, I think it, it makes people more willing to change their mind if they feel like you've heard them and like you respect some point, some part of what they're saying. Right. Because it's so hard to admit that you're wrong if you don't like the person that you're arguing with. Right. And that it, it kind of, it comes back to these relationships. Yeah. Um, and there, I think, I mean, it, it's just hard to... Particularly when you know that someone's coming from a different ideological perspective, it's hard to, for for me to say like if you were a Republican and you voted for Trump and we're having an argument, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be hard pressed to be like I was wrong about something or I like I missed something, right? Just because I'm like how could you, you know? And yeah. your head is just like how could you? Yeah, you know? Yeah, and and it it is definitely I feel, conversations are a whole lot more effective if you start with yes. Like mm-hmm. I mean even if even if it's like okay, I'm going to agree with your initial premise. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about following that through to its logical conclusion. Exactly. And then talk about ways that looks the way you think it should mm-hmm. and how if it doesn't maybe we can do it better. Mm-hmm. I think it's also hard to like like active listening is hard. Like having a conversation with someone not to prove your point is is hard. Mm-hmm. In some ways like the way our media is set up is is to kind of be adversarial yeah i think it's kind of like i want to hear both sides and so i, I just kind of want to hear two people who disagree yell at each other <laughs> it's like the same for like our, our court system like i i think there's like there's so many ways in which adversarial interactions are built into like our our systems mm-hmm. um a congressional hearing it's like are the congress people here to listen to the witnesses no i was like i'm going to ask you a question that's a speech mm-hmm. and you're going to respond to the question in your own speech. Yep. Like there aren't really nuanced conversations to get back to what you're saying. We don't, we don't reward nuance in our, in our politics. Yeah. I I think it goes back to being able to teach that type of engagement, Mm -hmm. Um, teaching that type of that, that, like that type of debate, that type of critical thinking, that, that type of like, Act, uh, that type of engagement that because it's it is it's a learned skill you mm-hmm. like it's not thing it's not something that we're naturally good at as right. human beings right um and i think it's something that i mean it's something that in just in talking about it today and in, in knowing you like it's something that you have really internalized and bring to bear mm-hmm. pretty much everywhere which is like massively impressive to me 
Um, just as, because it's just, it's hard. It's, yeah. it's really, especially in this day and age in this politicized world is really hard. It, I, I think it's, it's hard to, to engage. And I think it's also hard to, I think that the other part about political conversations or even just conversations about history or, or, or any, any topic mm-hmm. where you disagree with someone is, is that it's hard to get out of like the ruts that like people are, are, are used to. Um, and I think that we've been trained through our consumption of social media mm-hmm. to like get in these conversational ruts. So for instance, and I was thinking about like, actually I'm, tr- I'm been batting around this idea, like as a piece for my blog, we, we, we tend to flatten like events into like the same kind of conversations. So, like, we're not really processing events. So, I think in, like, 2016, there were, like, three terror attacks in France. There was, like, one in Paris. There was one in Lyon. And I think there was one in Nice. Yeah. 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 So, the three terror attacks. Um, each of them instances of, like, Islamic terror. And during each attack, I started seeing people sharing the same articles. So, it would be, like, you first get, like, one that's, like, I, like... Vic thoughts with the victims of France, and then like there might be a Facebook thing. You can change your pro- your your profile picture, and then there's immediate backlash to that. That's like, what about this terror attack? No one's covering it, and these articles like it's the same articles in a lot of ways. And then there's a backlash to like that about like how we consume media, mm-hmm. and then there's like the comparison between like liberal. So it's like there's a content universe around how we consume these events and how we talk about them amongst ourselves but like the event itself is kind of meaningless and so there's also been like all these interesting articles where like people who died like five years ago people start sharing the obituary like on that day and they're like oh my god like this person like gone so soon it's like the person's been dead for like five years Mm -hmm. and it's because the event is not it's not so much news it's it's a representation or an identity you're you're reacting to the events in a way to frame and tell us something about yourself Right. And that, that is a, is, is a hard, cause that, that behavior moves from online to like how we have our conversations in person. Right. So that, you know, if, if we're having a conversation, I'm talking about like, oh, like, did you see, I think a, a JFK, JFK, there was like a, a, a person tried to grab a gun and, and like there was mm-hmm. a terror attack. Yeah. We could have the same conversation that we had about a terror attack five months ago in France mm-hmm. and it would be the same conversation. Right. Like we're not processing the news. Right. And that to me is, is like hard for engagement because yeah. like we're just having these same kind of conversational ruts. And the, the other hard part about that is that the more you have that conversation, the more you get used to that groove, the mm-hmm. more certain you get mm-hmm. so that if you mm-hmm. do have a conversation yeah. with someone's like, no, like I have a different opinion on Islamic terror. You're shocked, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You ever like had a conversation with someone in DC and they say something that's totally not what everyone says in DC, and you're like, you must, and then you're just like, you must be a racist. I yeah, don't know. Who are I, you? I'm not yeah, having this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. The like the the one the one thing that I can't stop thinking about mm-hmm. is how much that parallels teaching to the test. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. how much like when you think about. Like there were there were all those articles when they had the when they added the essay section to the SATs, mm-hmm. how famous writers 
literally anyone who has written in a way that is that is compelling and meaningful and has affected history would have totally bombed. Yep. Any if you took any selection of their writing and put it through the algorithm that you use to grade the SATs, they would have totally bombed the test yep. because it it doesn't it doesn't act in that linear way. Mm-hmm. And I think like we and I think we over the last fifteen years have taught ourselves that there is a way to answer a question. Yes. And that there there are there are a finite number of questions and there are a finite number of ways to answer that question. Yep. And that that imprints very cleanly onto this issue of regurgitating the story so that it fits into the narrative because that's that's what you do that's right. just what you do that and that that is what it means to think and write critically is to answer the question in sequence that it's not backwards like you you're not backwards planning you're not saying like this is what i want to see and like how do i get there it's this is the product yeah and like i'm going to teach you how to do this yeah that's a really interesting parallel, and I'm glad you pointed it out, that it is. And then you get students who, when you present them with something that's a little bit more nuanced and, like, give me a short answer, mm-hmm. they also are like, what? Like, I've not been taught how to do this. Right. I know. What's what's really unfortunate about that is that if you teach, if you teach people, mm-hmm. either students or citizens, how to think critically, like, how, right. to, how to navigate other more complicated avenues they can do that thing. Right. Like if, if you're like, okay, here's the structure and here's the end result that we want to get, make this happen too. Mm-hmm. You can do that. If you've learned how to, if you've learned how to wade into complicated waters, swimming in a pool is pretty easy. Exactly. That taken with American exceptionalism, the mm-hmm. idea of make America great again, like the idea of we are the best means all of these people who are swimming in this pool that's really like really simple and really clean think that they're, you know, constantly ocean diving and yes. it doesn't and it doesn't translate when you're yes. like you're not actually doing the thing. Exactly. Um, it's and it, it gets back to like people don't want to be taught like they think they know. Yeah. And and that it, it to to both the classroom point and the the politics point. And how both of them are kind of like this teaching to the, like the test, like regurgitation. Critical thinking comes from like experiential learning. You learn how to think critically by being in situations that test your assumptions in your worldview and navigating those situations. And you notice that like when you when you do speak to voters, when you do make a connection, mm-hmm. it's because you are taking their experience into account into account. Mm-hmm. And people want to know that, like, you both are, like, honoring their experience and, like, listening to them. But they also want to feel like like you've heard, like, what informs their worldview. Right. So you, you're going to get so much further with, like, a voter who disagrees with you by being, like, tell me why you think about, like, what, what makes you think that, what in, what in your values or system or, like, how you were raised makes you think that. And they can tell you about their experiences. Now, experiences are not public policy evidence. Sure. But in having those conversations, you're testing your own assumptions and you're getting the voters to start to test their assumptions because you're talking about your own experience. Right. But that doesn't happen in the classroom. There's no experiential learning. Right. It's take this test. Right. And then you think, you know, but you don't. You you haven't learned anything about critical thinking. Right. Right. And social media is not is not experiential learning. No. And, you know, that that I think is. There are good things and bad things. And one thing is that, like, we have 
allowed social media to be a, a substitute for actual experiences yeah. with people who are different from us. Because yeah. we just don't, we don't ever have to interact with anyone different from us. And social media reinforces that. And it's, I, I think it, and it comes back around to uh, the willingness to be wrong mm-hmm. and, and the idea of certainty. Like what, I mean, the things that I know for, for myself, the things that I like know for mm-hmm. certain, the things that I know absolutely are only really about me. And mm-hmm. I only found those, like I only came to those realizations by being put into a situation where I had no idea what I was doing. Right. Like where, where right. you just don't like all of your assumptions get thrown out the window and everything you thought you knew about a thing ends up being wrong. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, I mean, which, which you can't really manufacture and which as we exist deeper and deeper in our bubbles that are shrinking in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, you're less and less likely to encounter those moments are the ones that actually help you to, to learn more about yourself and in learning more about yourself, make it easier to connect with that deeper part of other people. Right. Like if you, if you have a point that you can point back to, like, this is a thing that I know about me and I know it's just about me. Mm-hmm. If you can, if you can engage with another person and say like, this looks kind of like what you've got going on, which I think, I mean, which I think is easier in some ways with, I found it easier with kids, like with my, my yeah. little sister or my nieces and nephews. It's a whole lot easier with them because I can, I can relate. Like exactly. your experiences in that space are a lot simpler, which is awesome. Right. Because you're, because you're seven. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, and I can remember in some way being seven. Like you, yeah. it's like, okay. And, and so it's easier to, to tie back there, but like we're, I feel like we, we, we start to shy away from that so much as we get like as we get older and as we sort of, as we sort of push people, um, as, as we push ourselves to be more engaged in certain ways, we, mm-hmm. we shy away from that yeah. because it's not comfortable. And when you're old enough to have agency where we don't teach, we don't teach kids that being uncomfortable isn't bad. Right. In fact, we usually teach them that if you're uncomfortable, it's a bad thing. It's like, no, if you're uncomfortable, you're learning something. You're, yes. you're, you're something is, you're just, something is happening that you should pay attention to. And yes. that's it. Yes. I don't know how to like, I don't know how to translate that into, into anything more concise. But, yeah. No, but you know. I think the idea of being uncomfortable, people are not used to it or attuned to it and yeah. they don't want to be uncomfortable. Like people, I mean, discomfort is, we are, we are not a, a culture that's com- like, you want to be comfortable. That's the point of being like a consumer is that like, we want to buy a bunch of stuff and mm-hmm. it's going to make us comfortable. Right. You know, it's like, are you anxious or depressed? It's like, there's a pill for it. If you're like, your your bed, like got a back problem, get a new mattress. Like there's a, there's a, a solution to your discomfort. And right. so if you're not, and, and it's about being able to afford it. Right. And I think that our media is kind of the same. Like mm-hmm. we, we seek out media that, that makes us comfortable. Right. We don't want to try those new experiences. And because, and because yeah. we don't do that, I, and, and I, I, I'm, because we don't do that, we don't a lot of people don't learn the difference between discomfort that is like a part of learning and growth yep. and discomfort that's actually pointing to a problem. Yep. It's really easy to then not radicalize, but, but sort of exaggerate the gravity of the little of the, like either the little discomforts that exist in our own lives or like uh-huh. the little or, or the little discomforts that are involved in political compromise of right. like, 
yeah, you're not going to get this much money for the military. You're going to get this much money because we need to pay for education or right. we're not going to put this much money into the arts because we, you know, have an infrastructure issue, but we're going to continue funding the arts because we're aware of that, you know, you need to inspire a creative mind in the populace. Right. Um, and so, and so like the little discomforts that come from compromising with people on anything start to seem like these massive insurmountable pains. Right. But I, th- I think part of it is part of that is like is a values question is that so one one is that I think that across political spectrum people value winning more than they did that in a way that I, I don't know if this was similar the same you know before our current political culture yeah people it like if you prevent the other party from doing something mm-hmm. in the eyes of your voters you've won. <laughs> And yeah. that I don't think that was always the case. That it was like the point of having democratic politicians is to stop Republican politicians from doing things. Right. That conception of, of, of politics is just totally different. I think that I mean, I I don't know. Um yeah. I think that uh I think that you can probably point to point to moments like that in history, especially mm-hmm. in American history. Mm-hmm. But and but I think that like if you go back to um like you, but I think the only time that it's been at this level of stratification mm-hmm. was the only two times that I can think of were under Lincoln mm-hmm. and under which obviously you know yeah, that didn't we, go well yeah <laughs> or <laughs> or I mean it went well long term but it was like oh it was shitty for a couple of years <laughs> well, yeah <laughs> I mean it was only like the the yeah. the per capita bloodiest land war yeah. in, in Western history in Western um, right. well and uh, you know in terms of like. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> it was bad. Yeah, we can we can just all agree that the outcome was good, but that yeah. it was not great. Yeah. Um, and then, like you know, in in uh, in actually deciding what this country was going to be, like mm-hmm. under like in the con- first constitutional congress and yeah. like under um, under Adams and Madison and just sort of the, all exactly. of the that all initial of, fight yeah. between like the Jeffersonians and the and what are we gonna what are we gonna be mm-hmm. but i feel like at the end of the day that's that's the question that we're having again the, mm-hmm. like the conversation that we're having again is what are we going to be as a country right like, as a populace what do we want to stand for and what's the new social compact yeah um i think that's i think that is a hundred percent the question that is before us is is what kind of country like what what are the values that that we all profess to share um, and I think that what's fascinating to me is that, so the other thing that I think is missing from a lot of our, our conversations is, is an understanding of our history. Mm-hmm. We do a very poor job of teaching history in this country, um, both in valuing it and in terms of the time we spend on it yeah. in the classroom, but also in teaching it in a way that it is alive and informing and not just, you know, your standard, you know, pat narrative yeah. about what American history is. Yeah. Because I think that if people were to understand, like, like the thing that we've been trying to do, let's let's pick, like, women's suffrage. Sure. Like, starting, starting there in, like, the early 1920s mm-hmm. till now, mm-hmm. is to truly build one of the world's, like, the, the first attempt at being, like, we're going to build a republic in which every, we're going to let everyone vote. Every conception of a democracy or a republic going back to, like, the ancient Greeks was, like, not everyone is participating. Right. And, like, 
the people who are going to participate are the people who have the means and the time to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even like you look at the Victorian times, it's like, it's the, the ideal to like the Southern aristocrat. It's like, I own a plantation mm-hmm. built on slave labor and I am like a Roman senator. I'm going to study the classics mm-hmm. and study debate and discourse. Mm-hmm. And you get these great like aristocrats like Calhoun Jackson, to some extent, he was more of a military person than a than a sophisticate, but still the yeah. same kind of like participating in politics and being a public man is a privilege. Right. Where we have totally we had a, a bloody war and then a series of world wars in which we conceived of the idea of human rights being universal and like participation being universal. Yeah. And we are struggling to build it. Yeah. No one's ever we no people have not tried to do this before. Yeah. And so that's what's like inspiring to me. It's like it's it's only been like 50 years, like a part of the social compact falling apart because we don't have broad based prosperity anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's still a, a worthwhile project. Yeah. And I think that if people understood their history, they would they would see that yeah. people are kind of down on the idea of America because they don't like we've lost in some sense. It's not about making America great again, but like understanding what it is about America and about what we're trying to do together that is great. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know? my biggest gripe with, uh, my biggest gripe with the way we approach history is our lack mm-hmm. of context. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, because context does two things. It both puts in perspective, like it puts, it puts like the context of Andrew Jackson mm-hmm. and his relationship with native Americans mm-hmm. and his relationship with the American populace has a major effect on how you look at him as a president. Like right. if, you, if you're able, if you isolate out different parts without that context, it, paints a very different picture mm-hmm. um and that context allows us to more intimately connect our lives to that history yes like being able to look at look at the broad look at the broad influences of any moment in history recognize that they're all interconnected and yeah and then look at how our lives play into that mm-hmm. is a whole lot easier to do when you really understand the nitty-gritty a little bit um and it makes it and it helps us to to personalize it mm-hmm. um and to, and to give it a little bit more meaning so that we can connect back to that, you know, why America is what it is, why why what we're trying to do is a great right is a great thing, theoretically. Well, I think I think it's it's uh that what we're trying to do is like actually adhere to the values mm-hmm. that were established. That multiracial, broad based, participatory democracy can work. Yeah. And that that's kind of that's the the project that we've been engaging in. And I think that What's interesting about Jackson is that Jackson was in his own way like an early avatar of like the white working class. It's like the Jacksonian like Democrats. Mm-hmm. You know, these small like frontiersmen who were like were not expected to participate in politics, but who decided like, you know, I have the vote and I'm going to and that that, that can drive reactionary politics. It's right. not that every expansion of your political system is gonna lead to like greater justice and rights for all. It's that it can be reactionary. It can be violent. Yeah. You know? So I think that that understanding that parallel is is a big part of it. But also understanding generally that, you know, we we have been like the most powerful country in the world. And like that's just growing up like after the Cold War, like I've never known America as anything except for like the most powerful country in the world. Like no one can rival America. Right. That conception like kind of blinds you to what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. 
that democratic governance and liberal democracy, like these are fragile things and we should protect them. Like, and this is why it's important. Yeah. I also think that, um, being, you know, being this superpower, like mm-hmm. the remaining superpower in, in mm-hmm. some ways makes it really hard to want to change. Mm-hmm. And that in not wanting to change America in a lot of ways has stagnated, like yeah. in, in terms of policy, especially in domestic policy in our, unwillingness to invest in infrastructure like yep. the the refusal to change isn't just like isn't just reflected in political ideals it's reflected in sort of the the physical structure of the country yes um and especially when you talk about the the prosperity bubble you know popping and now really sort of showing its wear yeah um a lot of that is because we haven't you know we didn't in the 90s start training people who are working at coal mines how to build solar panels and like or or start you know start shifting uh the corporate structure from a 40-hour work week to a 30-hour work Mm -hmm. week knowing that population demands would require that we either worked less or fewer people worked like we there there are things that we know we can do but because the narrative of the American working class yep. is so strong yep. and, and and so foundational to our understanding of ourselves as a superpower, mm-hmm. it becomes really difficult to challenge that. Right. It's, it's this idea of... And so though, and th- those are two, I think, those are two key important ideas. One being, like, what are what is our social compact? Like, what kind of society are we trying to build that gets back to questions of, like, liberty and freedom and democratic governance but middle class economics is an entirely different idea of like what it means to be an american that yeah if you work hard and you mm-hmm. do the right things and you get whatever the test score is or you get you know whatever the degree is you can afford a middle class lifestyle that will afford you steadily increasing consumption right <laughs> Right. And that's an entirely different idea about what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. It's not just that at a, at a very material level, your living standards to be improving all the time, mm-hmm. but also that like, if your living standards are improving, you are virtuous. Right. That you are, that in consuming, you are fulfilling the highest ideal of the Republic. Right. Yeah. And that. That and and the idea of like what a citizen is like they they are kind of together and so you can see why someone who can no longer afford the luxuries or even just the bare necessities that their parents get like I can't send my kid to college yeah I can't afford healthcare <laughs> like I I can I I can afford many cheap consumer electronics but mm-hmm. like they don't make these here so like I don't really have any attachment right. Like, it doesn't make me proud to, like, you know, in the 50s, it's like I bought a washing machine and, like, it was built in Detroit and this is something we're doing together. We're participating in an economy. That, that even that connection to the economy has been severed. Yeah. So I, I see how it spills into your politics. Because you're like, my idea of, of being an American is that I was going to be able to participate in this middle class stream. I can't. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I feel like the benefits of citizenship, those material things, are going to undeserving people. Right. It's it's an interesting duality, mm-hmm. those two things. It also seems like, uh, in some ways, the relationship between nationalism and what people internalize as the foundation for being a citizen, mm-hmm. um, th- that internal conversation is 
paralleled in our conversation about globalization and immigration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're in the same way that we're holding on to this, you know, this unchanging idea of what it is to be America mm-hmm. that, that limits us internally and in that it, it makes us not want to shift, you know, not want to shift the structure of, of the country, but also it does, it doesn't allow us the space to be more open to a globalized world that right. is so much less reliant on borders. Like we, yeah. and in fact, reliant on those borders becoming softer because yep. we can't produce everything here. Right. We, we, we can't, you know, and, and we can't exist if we don't send food other places. We yes. like without international trade, without this, both in material goods and in ideas, mm-hmm. we can't survive yeah. the next century. Like it's just not a thing we can do. And so the the parallel there, I, I I don't know I don't know where that takes us because it, it the the backlash internally I, makes it even harder to imagine that we as a we as a populace will be able to embrace being global citizens as opposed to American citizens right. as that becomes a more real possibility. Well, I think that's also it's a cultural difference. I think people in cities are much more likely to conceive of themselves as global citizens or to be more internationalist in their outlook, partially because most of the wealth that's been created since the 90s has been has been in cities. Mm-hmm. Most of the wealth, particularly in the advanced economies, has been in, in large urban areas. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a, a cosmopolitan culture that is kind of the same. Like, for instance, so I studied abroad in London 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. One of my favorite London chains was Nando's. Now you can have Nando's in D.C. Yeah. And it's kind of because it's the same population. It translates. You could open a Nando's in, like, Chicago or San Francisco, and it would kind of be the same. Or Tokyo. Or Tokyo. Like, that brands and cultures have become global in a way, partially because of the internet. Like, that's part of what's feeding it. Mm -hmm. But it's also the fact that you know, city like there, there isn't. There's an urban culture and a and a rural, suburban, exurban culture, mm-hmm. and because of global capital and because of the way consumption works in our country, they they exist side by side, but they rarely they very rarely interact. Mm-hmm. So if I go to a small town in Idaho or a small town in Arkansas, mm-hmm. they'll be similar. There'll be a Walmart. There'll be like a couple of the big box stores. A lot of churches, mm-hmm. and and so those communities look more similar to each other than say that small town in in, in Arkansas and Little Rock. Yeah. So you have these kind of parallel cultures, and so that I think is also a a challenge to communication and a challenge to an idea of what it means to be an American, mm-hmm. because very very clearly these islands of blue, these cities have lost any kind of political or cultural attachment to the exurbs. Right. It also seems that if you live in a city, you're much more likely to encounter circumstances, both as a child or as mm-hmm. an adult, that directly challenge your assumptions about the world mm-hmm. because you're you're in a space that necessitates a constant influx and outflux of people from different locations. Like right. cities thrive on, on uh, travel and on tourism and exactly. on... Um, and on that type of, you know, broad trade and exchange of ideas. And so it's a whole lot easier. I mean, I, I, in my experience, being educated tangentially to a city 
was much more inclusive and much more like it pushed the boundaries of my assumptions about the world mm -hmm. at a very young age in a way that I think when you grow up in a, if you grow up in a small town where everybody looks like you and everybody knows everybody's business, you're not going to get or if not everybody knows everybody's business, everybody has a sense of like what life is like for everybody else. Right. You're not going to get challenged in that way. You're not exactly. going to be put in a situation where you have to think about viewpoints that don't look like yours. And I and the other thing about like is that the economic connections between cities and exurbs have been broken. Yeah. That in the in the production cycle, you know, cities don't need their exurbs anymore in a way. You know, if you were Detroit, you needed Flint you know, because Flint was where we had a certain number of specialized factories that are going to feed the production process in Detroit. Mm -hmm. But now it's it's more, you know, cities are, are service economy driven or they're driven by being ports mm -hmm. for international trade. Mm -hmm. And so I don't need a factory or a subcontractor in a small town. Like maybe I need, you know, I need that as a bedroom community because prices are high in my city. But like there's no... There's no direct link there. Right. And so you increasingly just have these two economies that, that exist side by side as well. Well, and, and that's exacerbated by the influx of um, of wealthy, yep. of the wealthy populace back right. into urban areas. Right. And Be global capital from everywhere. Yeah. You know? So where once it was like suburbs and, and exurbs were where you would go if you had the money to own a nice car and to exactly. commute and to have mm -hmm. more space, it's less desirable because you can fit so much more space into a city. Like yeah. I can, you know, you can, you can make do and live pretty comfortably in a two bedroom apartment in New York because mm -hmm. you've got Central Park and you've got, you know, you can take the train out of the city and you can be on, you know, be in Long Island in 40 yeah. minutes and you can, you know, be at the beach or, you know, get into the woods. It's, you know, it's really accessible from moving from a city to the outside exactly. and back in, um, which makes it a whole lot less appealing to live outside of the city, which makes it harder to live outside of the city because property values are lower uh -huh. and, it's and the the uh, the transit structure is built for people to get out of the city as a way to escape, right? And not to get back into the city as a way to employ themselves. Exactly. You know, DC is a great example of that. Yeah, like you, you get out of the city to to vacation or or to consume, but you, the productive parts of the economy, the high value industries are are based in the city. Yeah. And so the other thing I I think that that is kind of breaking down between country and city is that. Before, if you had a firm, say I was going to open a, a, a small, like an electronics firm or something in Detroit, and I want to, you know, start a sub factory in a, in a small town, mm -hmm. that factory could be a lifeline for that town. Right. Um, now that industries are, are less intensive, all that, all that we can offer some of these dying towns are like the financialization of whatever company is remaining, which doesn't work to the benefit of the people who had the jobs. Right. So it's basically you have someone like Bain Capital come in and like just sell off the parts that work yep. and, and get rid of what doesn't. Yeah. So you're like liquidating assets in a lot of these towns. Or we tell the small the small rural towns to like pursue a development strategy that's gonna make your your small town look a little bit more like the city and then people will come here on vacation. Yeah. So it's like rebuild your own downtown mm -hmm. and get a Nando's, right? <laughs> and people and then millennials will come. Yes. If you build it, they will come and they will drink your craft brews and like have a festival. Mm -hmm. And that is totally divorced from what number one, it, it's it's 
it's insult to injury because people see like finance people coming in from the city, mm-hmm. taking all their jobs, mm-hmm. selling the company, and then coming back to be like, I, I want to buy some honey or like it's it's that it's totally divorced from both the culture mm-hmm. of the place and as a as a strategy for job creation. Right. It just doesn't work. Like if you were, I was working in a factory. I had a job that provided me meaning, and you're telling me that the new jobs are going to be like retail, uh, a barista at a coffee shop. Like mm-hmm. there's still no jobs. Right. And because we're 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 also divorcing people's time, mm-hmm. we divorce people's time so much from doing doing something for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's really and it, both from an educational standpoint, like we train people how to do how to do a task. They execute that task, the time away from work, you know, it's, it's not as easy to have that downtime either as someone who's unemployed or as someone who's employed in a field that isn't particularly engaging to them, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so even if we were able to start to move away from a wage-based economy towards something where you're just like you as a citizen are sustained in a way you work, you work and contribute to the extent that you work and contribute. And then you have time to Mm -hmm. be a part of the community in whatever way that in whatever way that manifests, Mm -hmm. we don't really have a space. We we don't as individuals have a space for that. Yeah. We're like, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit into what it is to be a citizen of the United States to, Oh, you just have a hobby, but that hobby is actually what you do. And everything else is sort of in service of that thing. Yeah. I think that's a totally foreign concept to most people that, your hobby or your passion would not be something that was also the thing that you did for money. I've been telling people, like, I, having studied policy, I know or have some better understanding of, like, how it feels to be an art major. Because yeah. people who have, like, majored in art are like, this is something I'm very passionate about. I've, like, committed, like, time to study it. I want to pursue it as a thing. And people just shit on them all the time. <laughs> Because they're like, yeah. you can't make any money doing it. Mm-hmm. So like, why are you wasting your money? <laughs> and like, that's a that's like a a, a total like societal cultural. Yeah. I feel like I I don't feel like it. You know, because even when I was doing like economics or policy, people were like, oh, I see. Like there are, I see what career you do. Mm-hmm. But I think that also what has happened is like the death. Like people don't even care about your expertise in that. No. Like if you're an artist and you make a, a painting, someone some asshole always comes up and says, oh, I could do that. Yeah. No matter what it is, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a philosophy major, I, I I'm I'm yes. heavily familiar because it's like, well, oh say, oh, so you're good at talking? Yeah, and you're, you're like, no, it's like, no, I'm just I'm good at thinking about shit. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> like it's a, it's a it's a real field. It's yeah. thousands of years old. I mean, it is it Plato. Is, yeah, Aristotle. Like people don't they're like no. It's like I, I I'm 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 interested in like what thinking is supposed to do. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm curious about like why ideas are things. And right. everybody, at which point people are, their eyes close over and they're like, I just, did you, did you see the new Nick Cage movie? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. um, no, I, I think, I think that there's, there's an aspect of, it is expected that success means you'll have lots of money or you'll provide a service or a benefit or start your own business. Like mm-hmm. we have in America it is very much about, Making it means that like you're rich, yeah. Which I mean, I, th- I think that's a big part of why of why Donald Trump is president. He's able to sell an image of of wealth and success, yeah. In addition to the fear that made him plausible, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that and the future of work because so I'm a proponent of the basic income, but culturally it's such a hard sell for people because the idea that you would receive money 
for basic necessities and not have to like grind for it mm -hmm. like it just feels un-american to people people have a problem disassociating like subsistence with like hard work and they're like if you didn't have to work for it it must be less valuable and the logical i mean the logical solution in my mind which i think is equally foreign is mm -hmm. the the idea of ongoing education like mm -hmm. you get the subsistence base when you're like as a youth like as, as a subsidy because you're getting an education and so that education is not about that education no longer becomes about taking the test but becomes about like you are responsible to garner some knowledge about the world mm -hmm. as a part of being a contributing member to society mm -hmm. that's your part of the contract our part of the contract is you have a place to live and you're you have food and yeah. and you have space to like to continue to grow and that that, that continuing education or like being an art major and making art or like writing books on policy or studying mm -hmm. philosophy that's your job now yeah and because that contributes to society simply from the fact of you doing that thing mm -hmm. you are then allotted this this base necessity so that right. and, and you know and you know and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're you know not going to engage in capitalism if your ideas right. are especially good then those go to market and those yeah. contribute back into society in a more meaningful way and you get additional income but that's no longer like it no longer is the necessity and like if that right. if you want to do that and then still make money on top of it you can go be a barista or be a cook or right. be like or or sell that, cars or right. whatever i think i and i think that from from the perspective of i think it makes number one i think it makes sense because when you really start to think about how much money is earned on on things that should be common assets that we all own. So think you like you think about just pollution and carbon. It's like there should be a tax on carbon because we should be internalizing that like external price, like the damage to our lungs and the damage to our environment. Mm -hmm. We should be ex in internalizing that price. Yeah. Um, and that money could then go to fund some of these things that are like these are common interests, like healthcare, like healthcare or yeah. clean water or right. you know yeah yeah. So we're, we're, we're clearly on the same page, yeah. but I, I think that it's hard to, or it's difficult to get over the, the cultural assumption of like, what makes you virtuous is, is work yeah. and then consumption. And like, I don't really care if you participate and like, like you, it's your right to participate in public mm -hmm. discourse, but like, we don't expect you to yeah. outside of like, I guess the presidential election, like there's not a real societal value on participation outside of voting. Right. People are like, you have to vote. Voting is virtuous. Consumption is, is, is something we consider virtuous. Working is like the most virtuous thing you can do. Right. But it's not like further the political discourse. Well, we don't ask our citizens to really do that. We ask them to choose and consume. Mm hmm. And and I mean I think to some extent we've made we've made uh, we've made American politics a consumer like it's a, a consumer good, and I think it's I mean it's it, I think it's really apparent that educating yourself isn't considered virtuous especially like in 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 America under a Trump presidency educating yourself is not like we've come full circle it is not virtuous to be educated right and in fact in some ways it is less virtuous to be educated than to actively avoid education. Yep. And 
that, I mean, and, and that's especially troubling because I don't like, that's the only path that I see right. forward in terms of actually making some of these things a reality. It's kind of like education has like liberal bias now. Yeah. Which is frustrating. Yes. I don't, and I don't know, I don't know what to do. I understand the, the backlash to expertise. Because it's not like, you know, we, we've had very smart people making policy in this country and they screwed it up, you know? Yeah. It's like, you look back at the 60s, it's like Robert McNamara and like all the best and the brightest. It's like, these were some of the smartest people, you know, in government at that time. And they doubled down on Vietnam. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> being smart is like no assurance that you won't do, whether you do the right thing. But I think that the other part of it is that, you know, I, I do think that the urban culture, mm -hmm. the urban monoculture that is globally developing does prize education. Mm -hmm. It does like put a premium on like the, and like, and also the meritocratic idea of, of education. Right. That we could fix what's wrong in our society if we had a similar elite, but if it was like more diverse. Right. Like, and that's all we need to do. Yeah. That I think is also increasingly less salient to people particularly on the left, like you, like the people who, you know, are attracted to Bernie and, and his message, they're like, no, I don't buy into this meritocracy argument anymore. Right. Like standardized testing does not track ability or like aptitude attracts demographics. Right. And so when that part, that part of expertise is being questioned, in addition to like, you're telling me you're smart and you know how to do it, but I've seen instances of you screwing up. Right. Like how do you manage that backlash while still, you know, letting people who are actually know what they're doing do it? Yeah. And I think, I think it comes back to the same level of like discomfort and like the, it comes back to discomfort and certainty, mm -hmm. like, and that embracing that discomfort, recognizing that it's just like pointing you in a direction and, and oftentimes questioning your certainty about your circumstance, whether it's physical mm -hmm. or emotional or intellectual, mm -hmm. um, being able to, to lean back into it allows for us to say, okay, cool. I can have a conversation about why you are or are not capable of performing in a way that you have proven to me thus far. You haven't mm -hmm. or, or that you have in the past and have failed to do recently. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that space that like that space, I, I think that space is also, too, it's, it's kind of the baseline for it, it's the baseline for developing that trust. Yep. And it's the baseline. Yep. It's the, and it's the baseline for developing, you know, an acceptance of change. Mm -hmm. I think one of the cool things, one of the things I always admired about my teachers was that they never wanted me to stay the same. Mm -hmm. Not that they wanted necessarily wanted me to get better. That was kind of a given, but that there was this regular, all of my best teachers were very, very vocal about the, like, you will grow, yep. you will change, you will develop. And that is, that is the, the getting better part. Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of narrative, if, if there was a democratic politician who could stand up and, and run on that kind of platform, right. Like who could stand up and like, take the, take the Bernie, take Bernie's position and shift it to, we will grow together. We right. will develop together. Sometimes it will be hard. And, through that growth and challenging our expectations of ourselves, mm -hmm. we will continue to make this country and this populace a better place. Mm -hmm. Like if, if it, like that's, that's the kind of messaging that I think people are hungry for because yeah. it, it resonates all the way back to that early stage of development where it's like, yeah, you're changing, you're growing it. It's just a part of the process. Right. And I think people have, people are so insecure in this economic environment 
people people don't buy the don't buy the message because they're like I don't think that the change is going to benefit me. And so, how do you get people to a place where they believe your messaging? Right. So I think people find it. They found Donald Trump's messaging easier to believe than Hillary Clinton's, which was that we're gonna. If you think that what what's happening, like if you think we need to change course, and you don't like the direction the country's headed, how do you convince them that continuing the, the current policies mm-hmm. will be better than taking a chance on this guy who's saying that he's just going to bring back all the stuff that I liked right from before? Right. I think. I mean, I've I've said it earlier in the in the pockets. I think that Donald the Donald Trump will fail because he's not doing the things he said he was going to do. Like right. if he was actually going to, if he fixed the coal industry <laughs> and like brought manufacturing jobs back, I'd be like, Shh, like we are screwed. Yeah. But I'm like, you can't do it because they're just not, because it, because they don't exist. They don't exist. They're gone. Right. Coal is not, it's just, it makes no sense to invest in. Like that's no. a, that's a market reaction. Unless it, you're going to force people to invest in coal. Yeah. And it, yeah, and, and I think that's that's something that I I think too few people understand is that a lot of a lot of the changes that we shackle, like a lot of the things we say, well, it's because of regulation that, like, it's because of regulation that education is the way it is, or it's because right. of regulation that you know our power industry in this country is the way it is. Most of that reasoning is actually economic. Like mm-hmm. most of that, mm-hmm. most of the reason, like the coal industry isn't people aren't reinvesting in coal and people are investing less in oil and natural gas not because of regulation but because clean energy has a longer viable investment life and you know education the education uh system in this country isn't in trouble because of regulation or because of the way we we uh build policy around teachers it's because of the way we market textbooks and and you know the way we fund schools right It, it comes it comes back to the money and I don't know how to explain that. Like, it, I think it's 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 a harder it's a harder narrative to sell. It is. Uh, then no, we're just gonna fix it. Yeah, I mean it's it's also it's a harder narrative to, like when you're talking about a uh, a family that's three generations of coal miners, mm-hmm. it's hard also to explain that the industry is just gone, right? Yeah, I think that people in urban areas don't. Like if you haven't been to a rural community and like seen a, a shuttered plant or interacted with people in the community, like it's hard to to really understand what it is for a small town to have had like one industry and for the industry to just be gone. Yeah. Like part of it's just that we dug all the coal out of the ground. It's an extractive industry. It was gonna end at some point. Yeah. If now you have to remove remove an entire mountaintop to get any coal, then it's like, okay, we're running out of coal. Yeah. That's one part. Yeah. So I, I do think that making the case to people that we understand this energy that that this industry is gone, but we have a vision for an economic future in this region, and like this is how you're going to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Has to be the message, yeah. And people don't people don't trust the messaging because it's been wrong for like the past twenty years. People yeah. are like, well, we we will retrain you, um, and I mean that's it. It's kind of like this mealy mouth. Like, what does retraining even mean? Yeah. I mean, and I think part of that, part of that too, is the is the partisanship because yeah. it's it's tough. Like, ideally, a Democrat would be able to go into West Virginia with like Solar City, a and a viable pr- proposal for funding of like funding subsidies for Solar City and funding for uh, federal training 
mm-hmm. of people living in coal, coal towns on how to build solar panels and how to install them mm-hmm. and how to market them and that you would have a 10-year plan built around you know doing that in a way that developed the infrastructure and train like retrain the populace mm-hmm. and um and made it appealing for those jobs to exist there and also protected the people in those communities so that those jobs were made more readily available to them than you know incentivizing people who already have those skills to move into the area and take exactly. the jobs anyway exactly and that's the kind of thing that should be a bipartisan win mm-hmm. but because for a democrat to make that happen because for it to happen a democrat would have to propose it because it's alternative energy yeah it couldn't happen because it would have it would have the d well, it's, the, it's the also that like i mean it's a dying industry but they still also run the politics and mm-hmm. like it's it's interesting yeah right it's like they have they are losing clout because the industry's shrinking and they've had to like lay people off mm-hmm. but they also still like the the culture is conservative and they're like we don't think government should be investing in winners and losers and for so long, the alternative industry has been like alternative energy has been like the boogeyman mm-hmm. in like a lot of coal communities because mm-hmm. they see that we're taking federal subsidies that used to go to propping up coal mm-hmm. and we're directing them to alternative energy. One of the reasons that I, I like the basic income as a policy mm-hmm. solution is that I think that if you started to put money into people's pockets to address like their need for like basic food, clothing, shelter. Mm-hmm that some of the solutions to the problem of like the death of the coal industry will start, will come yeah. from small towns having enough resources to eventually direct to solving these issues. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I don't, I don't even know. I don't, I don't know much about energy policy generally, but I don't know if the solution would be to try to just transplant another industry. Yeah. I think that it has to be more about like, well, how do you, at a very basic level, the people in this town want to stay in this town and live in this town. And how do you make that happen? Mm-hmm. How do you make it sustainable? And part of it is like you have to connect it to global capital. But the other part is maybe what we need to be doing is just redirecting some of the gains <laughs> back to people. Right. right? Instead, of, instead of like giving a company a subsidy, mm-hmm. why don't we tax financial transactions and take some small part of every transaction and direct that money back into people's hands? Right. And, and I think to some extent it has to be direct that right. way when that's a hard sell, like that's a hard sell on its own. It is the fact that we can't even get that money pointed back into pointed back into education exactly, or pointed back into infrastructure. The fact that we can't, we cannot as a country put it, put together enough money to rebuild the roads yeah. that the fuel industry relies on yep. or maintain the rail lines that getting coal from, you know, Appalachia into the rest of the country need, I mean, that's, that's where it gets a little disheartening because yes. I mean, how, how do we, because the, the, the solution to the problem is, is the symptom. Exactly. Like yeah. we, the only way to, the only way to fix this is by, is by putting money into infrastructure, which gets people working in this country and, mm-hmm. and increasing access to education so that people can further, can, you know, further themselves or at least have, have a baseline to get in the door at mm-hmm. a lot of, at a lot of employment. Right. But we're not willing to put any, we're not willing to put the resources there. And so I think, I mean, I think we just, I mean, we could spend, we could spend hours talking around that, but Mm -hmm. I, I, at some point I think we come back to how do we get, 
how do we get public pressure built up enough so that that to make, levy like gives? to make invest investments and in, i think part of it is that you that the politics is I, I think that populism has driven politics on both the left and the right and i think that politicians at some point are going to realize that it's like we have to invest in like like actual in, in our people yeah like if we're not investing in our people if mm-hmm. their wages aren't growing mm-hmm. if we if we are seeing a steadily shrinking middle class if people don't see opportunity in the economy like this is not going to work mm-hmm. it's going to fall apart yeah i don't I, I don't know how we do that in in this current era because i don't understand I think there's such a crisis in ideology on the on the on the right mm-hmm. that it's hard to even really navigate. Like so, you know, you look at someone like like the Hillary versus Bernie is about tactics. Yeah. Yeah. By the by the end of the campaign, it's like she adopted most she was like, yeah, we'll, we want to do single health single payer. Like we want to do free cop. Like I'm on board with all of this. Yeah. And it's a matter of like how. Yeah. Republicans don't agree. Yeah, they they do not they want to do, do not these agree. things. Yeah. They don't want to do these things. Yeah. The people who are really conservative don't want it. Um, the 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 very hardcore libertarian wing of the party doesn't want it. The business community is like, I don't want to pay for that. No. Yeah. Um, and so it's just a matter of like, how? I think that actually the 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 I think what's starting to give what gives me a little bit of hope is that I think the business community is starting to say, you know what, we kind of do. Mm-hmm. Like I think you have mm-hmm. more and more businesses looking looking down the next twenty years, looking at tighter immigration policies, looking at you know greater looking at, looking at more consequences to leaving the country, and they're saying, okay, cool, mm-hmm. if you're gonna make it harder for us to do that. You're gonna make it harder for us to send like send our work outside of the country. You're gonna make it harder for us to import from outside of the country, mm-hmm. and you're gonna defund our our labor base yeah and make it harder for them to survive like screwing our human capital like you're yeah. you're you're hitting us from all angles and you're hitting them from fall, from all angles the only place that we can really make this work is if we fill the role that serves both groups yeah um personally from like from like a from an ideological standpoint and from a like inevitable consequences of that standpoint mm-hmm. that makes me really uncomfortable and it gives me hope that when policy starts to shift that way, so it's like, okay, the burden won't be all on you. We're just going to increase your tax burden. Companies will be like, yeah, sure, yeah, let's do let's do that instead of us having right. to pay for your schools. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's it's it is a little it's a little disheartening that that might be the give and take. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it it's hopeful. I mean, it gives it gives me a little bit of hope that right we'll make the turn. I, I think what's disheartening to me about it to continue on that is the idea that. Like it could be, you could have virtual, you will have some virtuous business owners who are making those investments, like Starbucks saying, like, we're going to pay mm-hmm. for our, our barristers to like take college courses. Mm-hmm. But you can also just as easily have like your business owner who's like, I'm trying to like minimize costs. And if there are people, if we have excess people, we'll just warehouse them. You know, that was kind of the approach in the 70s and 80s to like inner city communities, which is like, we. Yeah. You know, the manufacturing base has left the city. Mm-hmm. We it's moved out in search of like cheaper rents and like these smaller towns where it's, it's easier to operate. And anyone left behind is just left behind. Yeah. And just kind of manage it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I I do think that part of what we're seeing part of part of the reason for the political fragmentation is that all of these trends that you first saw 
in the first communities to like be to see real disinvestment are like spreading. Mm -hmm. You know, you're starting to see like like huge amounts of like drug addiction. Mm -hmm. You're starting to see increases in crime. You're starting to see just this kind of lack of like any sense of like what are you going to do? People graduating from high school and just being like, I'm not going to do. There's no opportunities for me. Right. Although I mean, just but to return to the optimism, I think that what makes me optimistic about it is that this is something new that we are trying to, to build a politics and an economy that works in a broad based way. Right. And that there's a recognition that we need to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> That's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Sebastian at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests. There, you can check out his recent TED Talk, The Case for the Basic Income, and find out more about the work he does for Friedman Consulting, both at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests or at tfriedmanconsulting.com slash r work. You can find out more about the show at applyingtoeverything.xyz. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. Please rate and review. Tell your friends about the show. It's how we get more listeners. I'd like to thank Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount St. Misery, off of The Great Resolve. Available on iTunes and Spotify, wherever you get your music. I'd also like to thank Kiara Scarcella for designing our logo. Tune in next week for a conversation with Chris Ulrich, body language expert and improv coach. We talked about improv, body language, and how paying attention can help save a life. Talk to you then.